Professor Anil Gupta, thank you very much indeed for talking to uh, Judge Business School podcast series today on innovation in India and China. Indeed, innovation does seem to be the key word for India today. Why do you think, as a continent, it's just so good at it? Well, I assume it is because uh, the conditions of survival have been so stressful over the years. And some people, by the way they are brought up or the way they have come up in their life, can't live with them indefinitely. So when people can't sleep with the problems indefinitely, they end up solving them. And I think there are a large number of such people who solve them. Only thing is that in, in a village, rarely would you find many innovators in one village. There will be many traditional knowledge holders in one village, but not necessarily many innovators in one village. Uh, also because the society historically was not very appreciative of those who broke the ranks. It was very conformist, very compliant, very congruent in that sense at the local level. And innovators are dissenters, of course. So many of these innovators uh, end up uh, isolating themselves for a while when they attempt to develop solution. And many times they don't even know that they are innovator. It is an outsider who sees a great merit in what they have done, and slowly and slowly their innovations start coming up. Again, then, do you think, or could you argue that in a community or any community, everybody can be an innovator? Or is it just a special person that's born to be that one thing? Well, here I must, uh, it might appear a contradiction in what I'm going to say, but it is not because. It is true that some people can overcome the inertia on their own, but if triggered and if pushed, practically everybody can be an innovator. And the best example is that we do idea competition among children and in the villages and urban areas. So I was showing a laptop uh, just as I was talking about my presentation today, and I asked the children in the village in Bihar recently, in December, what is the problem with this design of laptop that all of you can't see it? He said, well, we should have a cube. Now, a cube or a television which is a cube and not just a flat. Imagine the companies are making flat TVs. People in rural areas are asking for cubes so that they can sit around a television, look at each other's eyes and also see the program. This will reinforce the culture of sitting, together, sitting around. Whereas in television at homes with a flat TV, you're all looking at the wall. So the cultural aspect of the society, which is to look at each other, share their comments on what they're seeing, at the same time led to this idea of a, of a four-sided television or a four-sided computer. So I think the, what was missing was a provocation. We didn't, ask, we didn't answer the solution, give the solution. We only asked the question. So if only in the educational process, you know, there was a, a teacher of a school in London, Peter Day's wife, Peter Day, who writes a Business Today column in BBC, walked with us on a, uh, one of these uh, shodhiyatras. And she said, well, talk to my students in England and tell them why they can all be inventors. So I did that, about 10 minutes video. She showed it in the class. And when I came to London, the children came and gave me a book of innovations by the whole class. And there were beautiful ideas. One of the kids, for example, in this school, at primary class, said, we have alarm clock and we have a bed. But why don't we have bed with alarm clock? Simple idea. Nobody invented that in England, or for the matter in India. You don't get beds with alarm clocks. Or should be. 
So I think the children can be very creative, very innovative, if only they are pushed, and their parents decide their generation may have lived with problems unsolved for long, but children should not. And I think that's the biggest guarantee. Why? Anybody and everybody can be an innovator. Issue is patience. Should we be patient with the problem that either we face or large number of people in our country face? And we still don't get worried about it. Now, you took great joy in your presentation of showing us various innovations or the mother of necessity giving rise to innovation. And one of those was the amphibious bicycle. Just explain that concept and how well, it came about. Well, the concept about. is very simple. Mr. Saidullah, who is very old, 75-year-old, uh, had to cross a river in flood. And if he had to take a boat, that would have required more money. He didn't have that much money. He had a cycle. But he couldn't cross the river in flood by cycle. So he thought, why couldn't I make a cycle which is like a boat, which would float on the water? So he made two floats, attached them to the cycle, made uh, flaps on the wheel, on the, uh, on the spokes. And here was a cycle which will float on the, in the water and also run on the surface. Unfortunately, he still continues to be very poor and industry has not taken to his idea very much. So there is a tragedy here that there's a wonderful solution which is a great need because large part of eastern India remains in flood and therefore there could be a lot of scope for such cycles to be used for flood relief work, for getting medicines, for getting milk to the children, all those things. And yet he's here with this solution and we are still there with this solution not being able to take it very far. So these innovations, we must realize, and 100,000 of them from 545 districts of India, innovation and tradition knowledge, haven't gone very far in terms of satisfying need of large number of people so far, possibly because of capital constraints. Our budget remained frozen for nine years. For nine years, National Innovation Foundation budget remained frozen, which means in real terms it went down. And database increased exponentially. So public policy support for this work has been very weak, I must admit. Hopefully it will improve in times to come. We are hoping, we are waiting, we are watching. Uh, and we also hope that it will become a second nature for our children in our schools. So more innovations will come about when the current generation goes out of the schools than our generation, which was made to keep quiet when elders are speaking, which was made to follow rather than lead. So the new generation of Indians, and I suppose Chinese and other people, and everywhere in the world, I think, uh, could be very creative and innovative. However, they should also be very compassionate. And to me, creativity, collaboration, and compassion, all the three need to be in the right proportion if we want a society which will become inclusive. So innovations for inclusive development require people not only to be creative and innovative, but also collaborative and compassionate. And you also need that public sector going yes. hand in hand yes. with consumerism yes. and the private sector. I think we have gone, we went overboard in the last two decades by the virtues of private market, which is of course there, I don't deny that. But if all problems could be solved by the private market, then we wouldn't have so many people who are not sure of the food in the evening, who are not, the, the old people who are not sure of the health and other benefits, people who have talent but are not able to get education and other support. So I think the fact that market failure takes place is not news to us. Everybody knows that. And the fact that focus on public goods went down in the last two decades is something that we must all regret and contribute to fill that gap, which is how do we create public goods where there is no unrivaled consumption? Your consumption does not diminish the supply of goods for me. And it is non-excludable. That means your consumption doesn't mean that I will have less of it. 
Now, this kind of public goods, which means public libraries, for example, public workshops, public laboratories, which will add value to people's ideas, something we all forgot. Large number of good labs were privatized, as we know, in England and in many other countries. But time has come to draw a balance. Yes, we need a lot of initiative. But to argue that people will do good for society only if they're paid and paid a lot of money is actually not a very good argument because studies have shown after a while monetary incentives decline the effort, not increase the effort. Because people think, am I a machine? Do you think I'm only working for money? I'm also working for my satisfaction. And you're not creating conditions for me to feel more satisfied, and yet you want me to make more effort. So they decrease their effort. People should understand that the ability to produce public goods and uh, technologies which will help larger number of society, particularly disadvantaged people, require creating a system of uh, understanding the needs of those people who are poor economically, but not in their knowledge, not in their values. As I always argue, those who have less actually share more. Yes, you, you told that lovely story about food and, and how the poor eat better than the rich. Yes, you know, it's very interesting that... Uh, tell me one thing. How would poor people work so hard if their food was not better? It may be lesser, but they are very careful in choosing such millets. For example, minor millets have eight times more fiber than re- wheat and rice, which all of us take. They know that minor millets, many of the uncultivated plants which they use as curry for their food have a lot of rich vitamins. A study was done in Africa to show why arthritis was much more in some villages than other villages. And they found that wherever it was less and significantly less, six, seven times less, was because people were consuming local varieties of maize. And why local varieties of maize would do that to you, your knees? Because it could mobilize boron from the soil. And boron is very important for the metabolism in the arthritic conditions. So those who consumed local varieties of maize had more boron and therefore less pain in the joints. If these varieties can become nutraceuticals, better health through nutrition, and if market can be created for their products, then we don't have to necessarily ask them to grow more of what the world already has, which is wheat and uh, rice, but grow those crops and those varieties which are able to mobilize more minerals from the soil and make our health better. That being so, and and given that, as you say, the less you have, the more you share in every society, I know, Professor Anil Gupta, that you are trying to get all of the leading inventors together through something called the Honeybee Newsletter. It's a people-to-people network, and, and you've said that you hope that the people who join your network are crazy people. Why is that? Well, the fact that I'm here in Cambridge trying to persuade some of the top scientists here to work with our innovators is a proof itself that uh, I I do believe that there are a lot of public-spirited scientists in the world. If they're not with us so far, maybe they don't know about us, they don't know about these ideas, they don't know about the need where their knowledge can make so much difference to the lives of millions of people. And we, would, we are very keen to forge partnership with scientists, with designers, because a lot of technologies that we have in our database are proof of concept. So ergonomically and aesthetically, they need to become a good consumer-friendly product for which we need help of designers. We need help of production engineers. We need help of scientists who will validate the herbal technologies. We have a large database of herbal drugs for animals, for human beings, 
and growth promoters and pesticide for crops. Now, we have huge database, but very little so far has gone to the market or to the consumers because of our uh, inadequacy of resources for adding value. So I think there will be a great deal of merit if the best of the formal science joins hand with the best of the informal science. And this blending between formal and informal science will make everybody richer. The scientists will get new ways of solving problems, new heuristics, new ways, new, new frameworks of solving problems. As I gave example of that, that plate, all the pans that you use in your kitchen have flat bed. If only it had ribbed bottom, you will get more thermal efficiency and every household in England and for the matter in the world will be saving more energy. At least one point or percent more energy uh, will be saved because of the ribbed bottom which will mean more heat will be transferred from the gas plate to the vessel. It is not so at the moment. Now, just because large companies couldn't think of the simple idea doesn't mean that this idea is not valuable. And that's India's strength, isn't it? That, that's your, your honeybee network strength. That, that actually it's poor people from the grassroots up driving innovation and driving social change. Absolutely, and that's what Honeybee Network is all about. It believes in cross-pollination. It believes in acknowledging the people whose knowledge we have learned from. And it believes that whenever we add value and generate some wealth, a reasonable share must go back to the people. So finally, what are the horizons for India? We know there's a large diaspora, a lot of Indians working and living abroad too, but, but with that basic ability uh, to innovate, to change, to, to want to change market models. Is the sky the limit? I would say that we have also a lot of strength. For example, we have more than half a million technology students who do a project every year. Nobody knew what happened to those projects. We created a portal called as techpedia.srishti, S-R-I-S-T-I dot O-R-G. Now, in this portal, we are trying to pull projects by students, young students. Imagine that if the problems of small sector, tiny sector, informal sector, companies which can't afford to hire top scientists, they can be posed to our students and our innovators. We might, we might become, India may become an incubator of the problems of the whole world and generate at low-cost solutions for the future. So the, the future, the sustainability in the future will depend upon dematerialization, less material, more knowledge. And India has a lot of knowledge and a lot of spirit of sharing, which we would like to share with our brothers and sisters around the world and, and hope that it is not only those who can pay for the services and technologies will benefit, but even those who can't pay for it but deserve to have that benefit will access, will get open source innovations from our network. So, indeed, the sky is the limit, and with that innovation and drive for change comes economic success too. I hope so, that a lot of people will benefit from the technologies, and I would say that we also need to develop a lot of other incentives, uh, open access, community labs, community workshops, community tool rooms, for people to tinker with their ideas. And uh, not think that only large labs and large big labs will generate solutions, but the laboratories of life, as Dr. Mashilkar, who chairs the NIF, National Innovation Foundation, often says, in the laboratories of life, a lot of solutions are developed. So we must remember that uh, a resource in which poor people are rich is knowledge, values, the spirit of sharing and community. And all these resources must be built upon while developing new solutions. So surely economic conditions must improve, but so should improve the concern for those people 
whose economic conditions in Africa, Latin America and other parts of the world may not enable them to buy a lot of such technologies and goods and they must also be made inclusive in the spirit of development. So Indian dream must be much more inclusive, much more embracing, uh, much more uh, communitarian if it has to be truly a developmental dream. But it is a dream and it's a dream that can come true. Yes. Is coming true. It is coming true because Gandhian spirit of decentralized polycentric development, I think, has been so evidently demonstrated through the Honeybee Network, which has such a large number of innovations in such large distributed manner that there is no doubt that the idea of polycentric development can be the best guarantee for democracy and for participative democracy. And I think democracy will survive only when there is no one left behind and left out. Professor Anil Gupta, thank you very much indeed for talking to Judge Business School Innovation in India and China podcast series today. Thank you so much.